all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. I think we actually introduced ourselves twice last week. We did. Oh, hold on. There we go. Yeah. That's <laughs> that was our dehumidifier. <laughs> okay. Um, In our professional. Yes, because studio. we are professionals, as anyone can attest <laughs> to. Um, so, being professionals, our audio quality is perfect and we never swear. That's right. Because that's just how it works. Exactly. <laughs> um, rate, review, rescribe. Please only review if you're going to be nice, because otherwise, we're going to hate you. Because <laughs> we do well, this for fun. Sorry. You're going to hate them. I'm going to hate you and tweet about you and call you a fuck water <laughs> and a fuck face. So, you have been warned. Um, uh, follow us, Twitter, Insta, Facebook at AllBadThingsPod and at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to uh, suggest topics. We love the suggestions. I keep track of them all. Um, and I promise we'll get to everybody's eventually. There are many. <laughs> yes. Um, also, I wanted to do something that we haven't done in a really long time, which is shout out some of our friends. Sure. Other podcasts. Yeah. So um, after a bit of a hiatus, I think our friend Akshay at Blood on the Rocks is getting ready to gear back up. Okay. So shout out to Akshay. Um, he also has a bunch of back episodes. So um, if you haven't listened to Blood on the Rocks, absolutely do. He's he's a very cool guy. Also, have you seen any of his map drawings? I have not. On social media? Mm-hmm. He, he has a... I'm, I'm, not sure if I'm getting this word right. Cartography? Yeah. Um, hobby? Yeah. Of drawing maps. And he's really good at it, and they're very cool. And um, so he puts that up on uh, the social media sometimes, which is fun. Um, also, let's see. Shout out to Yours and Murder. Rachel and Rebecca at Yours and Murder. Um, Jen and Lindsay at Corpus Delecti. Um, so those are some of our indie pod friends. Yes. Oh, and we drink and we know things as well. Um, not quite as indie because they're blowing up and they have famous people on their show now, but Moms and Murder is a fun one too. Oh, okay. And they're the ones who recommended Cold on air. And I um, listen, have been binging Cold. It is a very good podcast about a very disturbing topic, um, much like uh, Abducted in Plain Sight that we watched yeah, um, on Netflix. I'm not sure if I've ever been more upset at people before. That was a very upsetting documentary. That was, uh, I'm not going to get into it, right. but, uh, in case anybody, but watch it. And just when you think it's gotten weird. <laughs> yes, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> if you can imagine it gets weirder, you can't imagine it, but it does. Right. So, yeah, exactly. definitely worth, if that had happened to me, I would have moved oh to God. Bolivia. Yeah, Changed right. my name. Uh if anybody even from like a penny saver wanted to interview me, I'd be like, no. No. <laughs> right? Yeah. It was it was pretty fucked up. I would have lived the rest of my life like a Nazi <laughs> in, Argentina. In, in Argentina. Just change my name. Change my name to something fun, you know, like uh well I guess I would be David in South America. <laughs> yes, you would. Yeah. Uh, or like Ricardo or Carlo. I'd be maybe Carlo. Carlo? Yeah. Okay. Carlos San Luis. Carlos San Luis. Well, yeah. you wouldn't want to keep your same last name. Sure, why not? Did you know that apparently, according to Criminal, our, a podcast that's recorded just over in Durham by Phoebe Judge okay. um, at WUNC, um, uh, she did a two-parter on the Witness Protection Program, and they said that in the Witness Protection Program, they keep your first name for your new identity and have your last name be the same last initial, but then a different last name. That kind of makes sense. To make it as easy as possible to, like, so you can still react to the same first name sort of a thing. And I I thought that did make sense. I guess you just would have to hope that you don't have a really unique first name. Yeah, right. And (laughs) I've seen seen quite a few. Oh, yes. Especially working in the restaurant business. Mm. What the fuck is your name? Okay, I'm not even going to try. Yeah. 
It's got to suck to have a... Here's your car back, sir. (laughs) It's got to suck to have a... Well, I mean, like, we're David and Rachel, so we clearly know what it's like to have lots of... You especially. My father has your name. So, so yes. There's a lot of Davids out there. There's a lot of Rachels out there, too. Um, I'm not sure which would... Well, actually, I think it might suck to have such a unique name that people just comment on it constantly. Like, that would be really obnoxious, I would feel. Let us know if you have a unique name. <laughs> well, all right, we've we've uh, we've inanely bantered. Oh, yes, what are we drinking tonight? I am drinking, I don't think I've ever plugged this. I have had it before. It is Deep River Brewery, which is in Clayton, North Carolina. Clayton? Clayton. In Johnston County? It is the Joko White Tater. Joko. Joko, meaning Johnston County. <laughs> yes. I've lived in the Southeast pretty much my adult life, so I feel like I'm making fun of these people a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> I think you might be. Yeah. I've literally lived in <laughs> Southeast my entire adult life. Well, except for that time I went to the big city up in, in uh, Boston temporarily. <laughs> but Miami is not the South, so at least there's that. But I've lived here almost 13 years yeah. here in Raleigh. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I've it's, been here almost 12. Oh, wow. We've been here a long time. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah, I love it here. Yeah. As much as it's the South, it's still it's still our place. So uh, Raleigh, I think it's in the South. It's not necessarily of the, the South. The Triangle well, is, uh, yeah. It's, it's, got, a, it's got it's some a good of the old area. traditions, but mm-hmm. a lot of the newer traditions, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, end of our NPR rant. Yes. <laughs> We're professionals. Yes, we are. <laughs> so... I am super excited about today's topic, which I've expressed to you multiple times. Yes, and I'm excited in the worst way possible. Yes, and that's the thing. It's it's going to be great and awful and interesting all at once. That's how it goes, right? So today's topic is um, a type of disaster we've we've covered many times, but it has a twist to it. And that's what's going to be the interesting part. Um, And I'll reveal it. Kind of early, Sean. And that's what we'll kind of spend most of our time on. But anyway, um, the one hint I kind of gave you was what? Do you remember? You said it was kind of like the Humboldt Broncos. Right, so, right. That There was a similarity. So what, do you have any guesses? Uh, the first thing that made me think of it was it happened someplace desolate. Okay. Because that's It's a good I, guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily the case. Okay. So. Um, I'm just going to let this unfold. Also, many, many pictures today. Okay. And I have marked in my script where I need to show you the photos. So, um, oh, I need to keep them there for now. Okay. Are we ready? We are. This is the story of Sabina Flight 548. Okay. All right. All right. So. Uh, sixth or seventh plane crash? Yeah, we've done we've done quite a few. There's yeah. and there's so many more left. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty left to cover. Yes. So, on February fifteenth, nineteen sixty one, Sabina Flight five forty eight crashed on its way from New York City to Brussels, Belgium, killing seventy three people in what remains the deadliest air crash to have occurred in Belgium. Okay. Okay. All right. Um. So. Obviously, all plane crashes are notable and worthy of a topic and everything. Um, But this particular crash has an added distinction regarding who was on board, which we'll get to. Okay. Um, And that's going to be kind of the main part of our Rachel's Famous Short History segments is going to focus more on that. But I did want to get kind of something out of the way, which is to kind of talk about the plane the actual plane and the flight. So a little short history segment here before we get to the meat of the story. So so this flight, Flight flight 548, was being operated by Sabina Airlines, which is an acronym for the actual airline name. It was the National Airline of Belgium. Now, fully spelled out, it's in French. Um, So it's an acronym. It was, are you ready for my French? Sure. Société Anonyme Belge d'Exploitation de la Navigation Aérienne. Oui, oui. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Keller Atiel. <laughs> what does that mean? What time is it? 
Um, almost seven o'clock. What is sip 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 o'clock? <laughs> Set yes, Set. Um, so th- what that means in English is the Belgian Corporation for Air Navigation Services. But of so it it's it's S A B E N A, which is mm-hmm. how it gets Sabina. So, um, so it was Belgium's Belgium's national airline from 1923 to 2001. So for a long haul, so, uh, that's quite a run. Yeah, it ended up going bankrupt. That's how it. Um, <laughs> stopped being the national airline but anyway um so this crash would have fallen pretty much like right in the middle of this airline's lifespan um so seeing how as how it started in 1923 it was started pretty close to the beginning of actual air travel yeah yeah especially commercial air travel so um where it was expensive as fuck yes and kind of a luxury right very much a luxury Mm -hmm. yeah that wasn't for Right. Even middle class people then. That was right, right. Strictly high society, pretty much. Or overseas travel yeah. and st- well, I mean, not That's even because people still um, went on ships. Oh yeah. Primarily back then, so yeah. And we also know from this era that um, airships mm-hmm. are very expensive as well. That's right, and they were still sort of figuring out what would be the main source of transport for the future. didn't take long for one to overtake the other. (laughs) Especially after the Hindenburg. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, I think it would... I think it would be kind of cool to take an airship somewhere because the the thing about it was, to Uh me, is you were kind of free to move around. You well, know, you were on a, a plane, technically. Not really. There's, it's, it's so cramped. Yes. I guess that's the main thing, yeah. 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 Well, they have some of those giant planes where you actually can, and there's they like do. a restaurant and bar upstairs. Yeah, but it seems like with an airship, like they had like observation decks mm-hmm. and like full restaurants. and It was more really like a ship. Yeah, yeah. it was like a floating mm-hmm. restaurant almost. Have you still not been on a cruise ship? I have not. Oh, okay. Never. Yeah. We need to get you out on a cruise one of these days. That'd be fun. A Disney cruise. No. 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 <laughs> no, thank you. All right. Um, so I'm not going to go into the history of the airline or air travel, so you can breathe a sigh of relief. I've got another history segment. So I think we've probably already done that several times. I, I feel I like it, yeah. Um, yeah. There are planes everywhere now, people. <laughs> we don't need to know the history of it at this point. Exactly. So, oh, I didn't say what beer I was drinking. Okay. Okay. I feel like I need to plug it. Okay. (laughs) Especially because it's a triple and I'm going to get drunker and drunker as time goes on. This is from Bombshell Brewing down in Holly Springs here in uh, the Triangle area. It is their Triple Vixen with Wild Berries, an American take on a Belgian classic. Triple Vixen is refreshing, dry, and tart. Mm. And I have met the, uh, the, this is... They brand themselves as um, North Carolina's first 100% women-owned oh, that's brewery. Good. That's uh, dangerously good. It is good. very dangerously good. Um, and I've met the owners. They're all very nice people. They so. are, yes. I met okay. one of them. Yes, one time yes, you have, there. yeah. All right, so we're going to skip straight to 1959, so we're going <laughs> to skip over a bunch of history. We're going to specifically talk about this type of aircraft that was involved in this crash, which was the Boeing 707-320. Okay. Um, that's when it was introduced in 1959 to commercial air travel. Um, so, and of course, that's because this was the type of plane involved in this crash. So, the 707 in general has an interesting history, like Boeing going back to uh, World War II, pre-World War II, all that era. But anyway, in 1958 is really when it took off. Get it? Ha 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 ha. I was in the middle of a sip. So. <laughs> As it entered commercial service. So it was the first commercially successful passenger jetliner and was Boeing's very first jet airliner, period. So this was the jet airliner that was like, this is actually going to work. This is a legitimate, viable product. So um, so the 707-320... Uh, the main improvements over... Now, this was the 320, right? So the 707 was introduced in 58. The 320 was introduced in um, 59. Uh, and the improvements over the original was the jet's uh, power and the fact that it could carry more fuel so it had a, a longer distance. It could go go farther. And its extended fuselage allowed for there to be more than one class of passenger. So they could have a first class and a coach or whatever. And it could carry up to 189 passengers. 
Um, That's a lot for back then. That is, yes, yes. So this is the plane we're talking about. Um, now, because it had only been released like in late 1959, the plane that was involved in this crash was a pretty new plane. It was only like 13 months old with about like 3,000 hours of flight time. So, all right, now we get to the big twisteroni, right? Okay. And our you have, you have quite the smile. I the, do the, the, because the because of anything you could possibly guess. I don't think you could guess what we're about to talk about. I don't. Okay. I, I can't. Rather, I can't. I shan't. Yes. So we are going to get into the people on board this plane. Now we know that things are not going to go well for them, so it's going to well, be sad. Uh, not all of them, or did everybody? Because I have not revealed that yet, okay. have I? You said seventy something. Seventy three people died okay. as a result of this crash. Yes. So I know that this airline can hold at least one hundred eighty nine. Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean they were at capacity because the longest time flights were not. I have not revealed so, any of those details. Now so have I? This is getting. This is getting. Uh, Juicier. Regardless, this is going to get really depressing, so enjoy. I'm sure it will. All right. So, first, a disclaimer. Obviously, any every, any and every person who died in this crash was an equal human being of equal importance. Um, so, we're going to talk about some of them, but not of others. That is to not say those other people were not important. I think that's important to say. Yeah. You know, that... Uh, all of these people had a life, too. Yes, and were just as important as anybody else. So that's important. But, some of them had kids. Some were... Right. Uh, some of them were kids, maybe. Yeah. yeah. But there was a notable group of people aboard this plane. The village uh, people? <laughs> yes. In 1961, <laughs> all five village people... <laughs> Six, seven, however many there are. Well, I mean, this, from from the way you're setting it up, I mean, we could be going into the multiverse theory where the, where the village people did exist in 1961. Maybe. Maybe. I, I really want to p- play Bioshock Infinite again. <laughs> You've been talking I about have. that. Is that with that your um, airship obsession, too? No, that kind of came from Battlefield 1. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. That, that that was a good scene, that that um, one thing that you had to play out. It was yeah. fun to play out. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there was a notable group on the plane, and because of their storied history, we will focus our attention on them. You see, on board Sabina Flight 548 was the entire United States figure skating team. Real? Oh, man. So let's talk about figure skating. <laughs> I'm so excited. I know a little bit. Yes. So now do you see how there might be some parallels to the Humboldt sure. crash? A disaster involving a winter sports team. Sure. Okay. So. Two winter sports that are very much highly connected to. Yes, because, yes. They both fam- involve skating. Because families that had boys and girls when I was growing up, the boys played hockey and mm-hmm. the girls figure skated. Your sister figure skated, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Did Renee? I don't think so. I don't think she did. Okay, she never really did any winter sport type of stuff? I think so. Okay. I think she skied a little bit. Oh, okay. For anybody who's interested in what my sister was <laughs> yes, doing just, when she was growing up. My whole sister. <laughs> <laughs> I have mentioned several times, probably most notably in the humble Broncos crash, that but you played I hockey, played yes, hockey absolutely. Mm-hmm. So from the time I was six to the time I was all the way through high school, every weekend yeah. for... Mm-hmm. 12 years was most likely at a hockey tournament. Yeah. In the in the wintertime, anyway. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about figure skating. Yes, we are. We're but talking they, about they, finesse. They have to do a lot of traveling, too. Oh, yes, and a lot of training as well. So, so U.S. figure skating isn't just a sport and a ge- geographical region, but it's actually the name of the governing body of the entire sport yes. of ice figure skating in the U.S. It's called U.S. figure skating or United States figure skating. They regulate the sport within the U.S. and are the ones who decide who represents the U.S. in international competitions, like the Olympics. Um, and so here is where we get into our short history segment, a short history of figure skating. Okay. All right. So... Ice skates themselves go back literally thousands of years. Is they really? Mm-hmm. To about 3,000 BCE. There's ge- um, really? 
uh, archaeological evidence, yeah, of ice skating. I did mm-hmm. not know that. Mm-hmm. I knew now, they went back a super couple... Super crude, I'm right. sure, and rudimentary. Well, but... even ice skates 50 years ago compared to what they look like today yes. are super crude. Very true. But uh, I knew mm-hmm. they went back like a couple hundred. I didn't know they went back that far. Probably it was meant as a way of transportation over ice and like if they were coming up with flints and sharp edged things. Okay, Demetrius, we need to let Demetrius in. I think he just took off. Yeah, he's okay. Okay. He's good. <laughs> he's been scratching at the door. Anyway, um, we got a lot of uh, compliments on Demetrius's little oh. uh, uh, cameos. So, yeah. He's eaten now, so hopefully he'll be a little, <laughs> a little less verbose. But so, so, yes, it goes back really far. The Netherlands was a place where ice skating developed as a social sport in the more modern Shock, era. Shocking. And by more modern, I just mean like, like 200 years ago. Or four, three or 400 or years like ago, yeah. Vikings still around. Mm, kind <laughs> of, yeah. And it developed in Europe throughout the 18th century. Um, now, in America, a skating pond opened in Central Park in New York in 1858. And it was co-ed. So it was actually one of the few activities where men and women could do something together without being chaperoned, which is interesting. Well, after the skating, they would go off and do something else together. I was going to say, but there's a lot of hanky-panky going on on that little that little pond. Um, but at the time, ice skating was done in what was called English style, which was very sort of stoic and rigid I, and formal. I, yes, I know exactly what you mean. Do I you? Do. Yes. Yeah. Is that still a thing, or is that something you've heard of before? In what it's context? like something you'll see in old, oh, old-timey gotcha, videos, gotcha. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, standing up straight and stiff. Yes, and sort of like yeah. moving your legs only, sort it's of thing. It's like yeah. how uh, one of the best documentaries I've ever seen is uh, oh my god, it's a skateboarding documentary. Oh, yes. I, I know the one you're talking about, but I don't remember the name. It is directed by Sean Penn, so look it up that way. Okay. Um, but it is about the, I mean, literally teenage kids created skateboarding. Yes. Uh-huh. In the early 1970s. I remember that, yeah. It was around in like the 50s and 60s, but it was all standing up straight. It was surf style. Or it was uh, yeah. very... Exactly like you would expect a bunch of um, people with crew cuts in the 50s to be skateboarding. And these these teenage kids in the 70s turned it into, essentially, you were surfing on pavement. Right, right. The style completely Mm -hmm. changed, which... Happened in a lot of sports, apparently. Made it uh, an international phenomenon. Still to this day. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So that was the main way people skated. Lords of Dogtown. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. But then... An American named Jackson Haynes, and here is our first picture. <laughs> he looks like a guy named Jackson Haynes. <laughs> like those, it looks like cowboy boots, and somebody just stuck skate blades on the Well, let's of talk them. about that. So, <laughs> And he's wearing whatever that outfit is. I don't even know. It looks like a Russian ballet outfit. Yes, kind of. He looks like he should be doing the ho 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 dance, whatever, yeah. Um... So he was a New Yorker, he was a ballet dancer, and he did something nifty, and he screwed the skate blades directly into his boots, exactly like you said. Because you know those, um, like if you've seen an old-timey stuff, skates used to be like attached to little wooden pieces that you then strapped onto your boots. Yeah, or uh, yeah, or with like a... Like a very tough rubber band or something. Yeah, it was it like around. an it yeah. was an apparatus. It was an yes, exactly. So he was the one who actually put them directly into he's shoes. Like, he's like, hey, idiots, let's just combine the two. But what that did was it made the blades more stable, which oh, made I'm you sure. be able to do more athletic things on them. So that's he was the one who started doing leaps and jumps and spins and other athletic <laughs> stuff. Good old Jackson he was Haynes. the guy who who started that whole thing. Then he was also the first person to add music to accompany an artistic program of choreography and that was again all very new so while he was able to develop this whole new figure skating idea um he he was coming up with this while he was in america but americans were like 
not having it. He actually had to go to Vienna. He had to go to Europe, and that's where it caught on. So it was an American who had to take it to Europe for it to become acceptable to come back to America, which is exactly what happened. So his style of skating, you know, English style was formal. His style of skating became known as international style. (laughs) Even though, really, it was American style, because he was an American, so... Um, It took longer for figure skating to catch on in North America than in Europe, but it did eventually in the late 19th century when a Canadian uh, named Louis Rubenstein uh, recognized the international style was pretty darn cool, and so he prompted the beginning of the first figure and speed skating governing body, um, the Amateur Skating Association of Canada, which is now called Skate Canada. That's what it developed into. Um, then Americans George Brown and Irving Brokaw were credited to bringing the style to America in the early 1900s. So in 1907, Brown created the United States governing body of the International Skating Union of America. Um, and also in the early 20th century, Ulrich Saukal. Oh, I know what that means. Yeah, was building on well. Haynes' athleticism. Uh, there is a move that will be named That's after this, right. this gentleman. Bringing even more leaps and spins and stuff to, into the sport. Hence, the Sao Cal jump. Sorry, I was reading it phonetically <laughs> there. Yes, like the triple Sao Cal. Yes. I've definitely heard of. Mm-hmm. It's 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 spelled Sao Chow. That's why I said yeah. Chow, but Sao Cal, yes. Um, so now, despite the usual bullshit that happens to women, anytime we try to do something that is anything, (laughs) Um, women were allowed to participate in competitive figure skating, at least to some extent. And yes, that took some fighting and everything else. But um, by 1908, figure skating made it into the Olympics in London. Now, this was the Summer Olympics, but because it was ice skating, they delayed the event several months until like October of that year. So it essentially became the first Winter Olympic sport. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. That would eventually develop into the Winter Olympics. Uh, so the that Olympics had four events: the men's singles, the men's special figure, the ladies' singles, and pairs. So there were multiple um, events. co-ed events. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and interestingly, Sao Cao won first in the men's singles in the very first. Of course, he did. Yes, he did. Um, now, of these four events, they each had three medals apiece, right? Gold, silver, and bronze. Only 21 skaters competed total okay. for all these. So there was a good shot they'd win something, right? And 11 of the 21 were from Great Britain. Only one was from the Interesting. U.S. Okay. And, he, and they didn't place. So. so back in the U.S., the United States Figure Skating Association was formed in 1921, and that became the main body of figure skating. A governing body of figure skating in America, and then formal standards of ice dance te- ice dancing tests were established in 1938. Okay. Uh, now, one of the stars of the 20s and 30s was a skater named Maribel Vincent Owen, or Maribel Vincent Owen, um, who is still tied with Michelle Kwan for the record in U.S. ladies' figure skating titles to this day. Okay. She won every women's single title in the United States Championships between 1928 and 1937, except for one in the middle in 1934. She went on to become the first female sports writer at the New York Times Mm. in the 30s. And we've got a picture of Maribel. Isn't she super badass in that She's, picture? Uh, quite a dish. <laughs> well, she doesn't she just look like like you don't want to fuck with her. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Very uh she looks like she's a hardened reporter. <laughs> yes. You know, like she's used to, she is the woman who doesn't care about walking into the men's locker room. No, not at all. Very kicky. I highly recommend Googling her. And looking at the images, yeah, she's very, very cool. That's quite a long time to hold any record. A decade, yes, almost every single title she won. So yeah, so after her and, and still holds the yes, a t- a tied of, with yeah. Michelle Kwan, who is definitely a name I've heard. Mm-hmm. Very well known. That's who, women's figure skater. Uh, Michelle Kwan's first Olympics could have been 
the Tanya Harding Olympics. Oh, really? 94? Mm-hmm. But because Tanya Harding, well, we would later find out, was somewhat involved with bashing Nancy Kerrigan in the knee. <laughs> yeah. Um, they gave Nancy Kerrigan Michelle Kwan's spot. Oh, that's they, right. That's right. Because Michelle Kwan was only like, I think, she was 13 really or young. 14 at that point. She was really young when she first but came she out. she yeah. competed in at, at least two, probably three Olympics. Oh, yeah. She's, yeah, very well known. And and we're not just talking Olympics. We're talking all the championships. World, there's, there's worlds U.S. and worlds, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, see, I know my figure skating, folks. <laughs> yes. So, after her own figure skating career was over, she went on to coach Olympic gold medal winners and she wrote books, several books about the sport, too. She also had two daughters, Maribel, named after her, who was born in 1940, and Lawrence Laurie. You don't normally hear a, a daughter named after a mother. Yeah, I know, right? It's not as, it's not as um, common as a junior, right? Yeah, I wonder but, why that is. Yeah, right? Like, why not? Yeah, same difference, right? Um, So, and then she had another daughter named Lawrence, or Laurie, who was born in 1944. Both of her daughters became figure skaters, too. Um, They both competed in the 1960 Winter Olympics. Maribel was in pairs with uh, her partner, Dudley Richards, and Laurie was competing in her single event. Of the 12 American Olympians competing in figure skating in 1960, Maribel, the mom, coached half of them. Wow. So, uh, in January 1961... Oh, wait, I have another picture. Here we go. This is uh, Richard Dudley. Both of these pictures are Richard Dudley and Maribel Owens. Okay. Owen. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So that's just them together, and that's them actually, like... Obviously, he's lifting her on the yes, ice in that case, yeah. Um, so, in uh, January of 1961, both Owen sisters competed in the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. Both won gold in their events. So, Maribel was uh, in pairs, Lori was in singles, and Lori's win landed her on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Okay. With the subtitle... Or headline, I guess. Come on. Um, America's... Oh, wait, I have it here. America's Most Exciting Girl Skater. Okay. So she's kind of like the all-American girl, right? Oh, sure. Absolutely. She's got a... Is it Dorothy Hamill who had the short hair? Yeah. She's got the cute little short bob. That was the style back then, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, very mod. Yeah. Very cute. Yeah. And she was... So this was 60... I think she was 16 at the time. So she was an up-and-comer. Uh, <laughs> Nowadays, that'd be a veteran. Yeah, right? <laughs> you were 16. So the U.S. championships were used to determine who would go on to represent the U.S. in the world championships that year, um, which were going to be held in Prague on February 22nd. So this is still 1961. So in addition to Maribel and Laurie, the team included Maribel's skating partner, Dudley Richards, Gregory Kelly, Rodley Mich- Michelson... Husband and wife team Patricia and Robert Deneen, brother and sister team Laurie and William Hickox, Stephanie Westerfield, Bradley Lord, Douglas Ramsey, brother and sister team Isla Ray and Ray Ellis Hadley, Donnelly Carrier, Roger Campbell, Diana Sherbloom, and Larry Pierce. And most of these people were like really just gearing up and getting their careers going. They were mostly in their late teens or early 20s. Mm. Like this was really, yeah, and this is where it's going to get sad. Yeah. Um, and so. On the evening of February 14th, which would be Valentine's Day, 1961, these 18 figure skating championships, six of their coaches, including Lori and Maribel's mother, Maribel Levin, Levin Owens? Vincent Owens. I don't know how it came out with Levin. <laughs> oh, it's because of Jan Levinson Colt. That's yeah. why I sing it. Samson. <laughs> um, also, the team manager, two judges, one referee, and six family members of the skaters all boarded. Sabina Flight 548 mm. out of Idlewild Airport, which we have talked about before. That's yes, now JFK. Mm-hmm. But literally, JFK had just been inaugurated, so it was not called JFK at the time. Uh, in New York to head they, they to weren't Europe. Pre- they weren't predicting he was going to no, get shot in no, a couple of years? No, at least uh, we haven't talked to the CIA about that. But uh. Uh, <laughs> Apparently, George H.W. Bush didn't know where he was when that happened. Mm. 
Oh we'll no! Wasn't it um, an episode of the the dollop? Wasn't it Ted Cruz's dad who killed Kennedy or it whatever? Was, according yes. to Trump, yes, had a hand in it. <laughs> yeah. No, Ted Cruz's father is clearly highly disappointed in his own son, judging from those videos, those campaign videos we watched. Anyway, <laughs> I thought it was funny how Ted Cruz got stuck with being the Zodiac killer, but he was he was born after the very first killing. Yeah, took that's place. that's but he's so, so ridiculous. But he's so creepy it still stuck to him. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So they were headed to Brussels, Belgium. And now I didn't see any specifics on their travel plans from there, but I imagine that they were either taking a connecting flight on to Prague or they were taking rail or train, you know, some other form of transportation because Prague is like um, about 900 kilometers or over 500 miles from Brussels. Okay. So obviously they had to do something else to get to Prague. But anyway, so they were on their way. To the world championships. Mm. So that's why they were going. So anyway. That's that's kind of what I figured. Obviously, yeah. they're not the U.S. championships because that would right. be somewhere in America. Exactly. So Sabina Flight 548 was filled with 34 members of the United States figure skating cast and crew. You know, the skaters plus their um, coaches plus the refs and all that stuff. And kind of their entourage, I guess, you know, so to speak. Also, 11 crew members and 27 other passengers. So here's your math for a total of 72 people on board. No. But do you remember uh, how many people I said died? You said 73. Yep. We'll get to that. So, okay. So, oh, the 707, which we talked about earlier, um, and along with Sabina, was headed for Brussels Airport in Brussels, Belgium. So, late geography corner here. Brussels, do you know where Brussels is? Because I did not until I looked at a map. I knew I, it was I like know, near France. But. Well, that's that's all I know about Belgium is that it borders France and that it has a highly, like Belgium is all, <clears throat> from what I understand, is almost like a sister country to France in a, in a lot of ways. I think they speak French, they if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's in that's uh, all I know. Brussels is basically like north central Belgium, and Belgium is obviously in Europe. It's south of the Netherlands. Uh-huh. It's west of Germany. Yeah. And Luxembourg. Northeast of France, and it has a little bit of northwestern coastline on the North Sea, which is by the English Channel. They're also very good at soccer. Well, good for them. Yeah. And they have great it, waffles. It, it, it is, it is <laughs> and good, sprouts. It is good for them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So is, is Brussels the capital? It must be. I I but guess I, I did not know. look that up, but my suspicion would only, be yes. Like when you when you said Brussels earlier, I was like, oh Belgium. That's the only city yeah. I know in Belgium. Right, so I couldn't name another. Antwerp? Is that Belgium? <laughs> or am I just uh, totally that making city, that up? It is. I'm not sure, not sure in which <laughs> it country. could just be making that up. Sounds I don't like know. Germany. Antwerp? Antwerp? We'll look it up later. Oh. Anyway. Um so <laughs> we'll just go with Brussels is the capital. <laughs> sure. Somebody will clearly. Sure. We do have international listeners, so somebody don't don't be afraid to call us out <laughs> exactly. if we got that wrong. <laughs> so the flight was piloted by Ludovic Marie, Antoine Lambrec, and Jean Roy. Now they were both experienced pilots, and they were both ex-army. So they okay. they were well, they were good I, pilots. I, then again. It, 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 at this point in pretty much world everyone's history, ex-army, especially in Europe. Yeah. yeah. So they departed Idlewild Airport just after 7 p.m. local time on February 14th, 1961. No problems on takeoff. They flew across the Atlantic in about seven and a half hours. Plus, remember they're crossing time zones. So sure. obviously, it's it's propelling them forward time-wise. Six hours ahead? Seven, I don't like know. That. I don't know. <laughs> it's ahead. Five hours, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and the flight was uneventful. It just all just kind of went per use. Um, at no point was there any indica- indication to air traffic control that there was anything wrong aboard the plane. Um, so that was that. So around 9.50 a.m. local time, so we're gaining on Brussels at this point, and now this is February 15th because they it's a red-eye flight, right? They're flying sure. overnight. So sure. the pilots communicated by a radio to the Brussels air traffic control for clearance to descend to the airport. So they're like, okay, we're, we're getting ready to come in. Do we have clearance? You know, And uh, there's a whole transcript and everything of everything that was said, but it was all very 
very usual, very common stuff just about, like, clearance and all that. Um, so the final clearance to land was given at uh, 9.59 a.m., at 10.02 a.m., air traffic control at the airport tried to contact the plane again, but they didn't get an answer. So at this point, they actually lost radio contact with the plane, which was already very close to the airport. So at this point, the plane was about three miles or five kilometers from the runway and had lowered to about an altitude of about 900 feet. So definitely it's coming in for a, yeah, for a landing. Um, when suddenly the power was increased, the landing gear was brought back up and the plane started to ascend. Not only did the plane start to ascend, but it began to turn left and circle. Now, at this point, the Brussels airport, so remember they didn't have radio contact, but they could see what was going on. They're like something. Things wrong here. What's going on? Um, there was mention that perhaps there was a, another plane potentially sitting on the runway that they thought they were going to land on. So they had to like, oh, okay. we can't, we can't land. Yeah. We have to go on. But anyway, the thing was, so they they were turning left and starting to circle back around, but they kept gaining altitude as they circled, and then they kept circling. And they kept gaining altitude every time they circled. They ended up circling the airport and the runways a total of three times, every time climbing higher and higher until it started getting very clear that something was going wrong because not only were they climbing in altitude, but the nose was tipping higher and Mm, higher and higher until the plane was at a near vertical bank, nose up. So this plane was just going straight up. So what it certainly appeared to be was that the pilots were fighting for mechanical control of this plane. Oh, God. Yeah, so... um, You were so goddamn close. Yes, Yes. So, oh my God. so the plane was almost vertical, nose up, af- had circled three times, and like the whole time kind of banking closer and closer, you know, nose That's up. And then all of a sudden, it leveled out, then pitched up abruptly, then lost all speed, and all nosedive oh and spiraled straight down to the ground. What the fuck? Yeah. And it crashed. Straight into the ground, nose down. Uh, no chance at survival for About anybody. About two, two miles or three kilometers from the airport near some farmland, some marshy f- farmland. And it was about 10.05 a.m. local time. Jesus. So the, the plane basically exploded. Oh, yeah. Upon impact. Yeah. It sent shrapnel flying. Um because it, like, like I said, it like exploded pretty much and was burning. A young farmer named Theo Deliat, Deliat, there's your, your seventy third. He, he was impaled by a piece of aluminum and was killed. So he was the seventy third victim. Mm-hmm. And another farmer, Marcel Lawers, was also hit by debris. He ended up having to have his leg amputated because of it, but he did survive. Um, and people tried to approach the crash site, but could not. No. Okay, so I should have shown you this picture earlier. This is okay. this is them boarding the flight. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah, I should have shown you that before, and you can even see seven oh seven. Sabina, you can and see Sabina. that in the corner. It's the flight. This is they they took that picture as they were boarding the flight. That's the last picture of them because. So here's a picture. Again, more pictures, but this is where they get sad. That's the wreckage. I'm surprised there's anything left of that plane. And there's newsreel footage of that as well. But yeah, it's basically just wreckage. That's all it is. Just debris. Just just tons of debris. Um, So they couldn't approach the crash site immediately because it was all burning. Everything was on fire, yeah. Yeah. Um, rescue workers did arrive quickly, but all 72 people on board had died on impact. At any airport period, especially an international one like Brussels, they're going to have fire crew Mm -hmm. on standby all the time. Or nearby. I mean, Mm -hmm. if it is the capital, you know, then it is close. Yeah. So, but even so, I mean, you're not, you're not fucking rescuing anybody Mm -hmm. out of that. Mm -hmm. There's, that's, no. 
So, and I did read that, like, they found remains of people, like, bracing in the crash position, you know, with the Mm -hmm. lean over and yeah. Um, It took over a week for them to remain, or identify all the remains of everybody, um, and found this, this is the, this is the kicker, found among the wreckage in the plane was a copy of the Sports Illustrated with Laurie on the cover. Yeah, so I'm going to do this to you. Sorry. It's going to be sad and horrible. Yep. Side by side, yeah. Mm. So they found a a copy of her magazine. Obviously, she was dead. (sighs) So... um, As many skaters were flying to Europe for the international competition... Some people, like, were up in the air when this happened. So, I mean, there was no Wi-Fi or anything. They didn't know until they landed. And then it was just horrifying to find out. Um, Because, obviously, when you're at this level, your community gets very small and tight. You know, everybody knows everybody. sure, because you compete against each other all the time. You see each other all the time. Yes, absolutely. Um, Now, at first, the organizers of the event in Prague tried to pressure the International Skating Union to continue the competition, the international competition. Obviously, this was a matter of money for them. Like, they had a bunch of people coming in. It was going to be a good moneymaker and everything. So you can understand that. And at first, the ISU agreed. But then on February 16th, they confirmed, we're we're canceling this entire event. So they canceled the world championships in 1961 out of respect for the, the dead skaters. So I'm I'm actually kind of surprised by that because just the logistics it takes to put on those events and everybody's on their way. Yes. Most people Um, were already there or many people were already there. Yeah. But I can, I can see how probably just nobody had the stomach to even go through with it. Yeah, the loss of morale. Yeah. And, I mean, like, and this is like, over 50 years ago. Yeah, and like, yeah. I can't fucking... Like, yeah, yeah. What, are, what are we competing for again? Like, it right. does, doesn't like, even does matter, matter right now. And then imagine they all had to fly home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine how awful that would be? So, yeah... Um, U.S. President John F. Kennedy, who, like I said, had only just been inaugurated. Sure. This is early 61. He released a statement. Yeah, he's literally like three weeks yeah. in the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He released a statement of condolence from the White House. Here's an interesting thing. He and his brother, Ted Kennedy, actually knew and were personal friends of Dudley Richards, Maribel's oh, partner. Oh, really? So they had a connection to that team. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So an investigation into the crash was obviously immediately begun by the government of Belgium, also the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, and the International Civilian Aviation Organization, ICAO. They took months. They combed through sure. all, all the evidence. Um, and at one point, the FBI was actually involved because they were entertaining all possibilities, including terrorism. terrorism. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now, in the 70s, that would have been much more likely. (laughs) But um, anyway, uh, the plane was found to be intact when it crashed, so it didn't explode or anything. Plus, there were eyewitness accounts. Yeah, that one picture, I'm like, like, that's why I I can't believe there's anything left of it. Right, yeah. No, it, it was not, it did not explode before impact or anything, so yeah. So ultimately, and this is an interesting thing, the exact cause of the crash was never definitively determined. Sure. Like, proven, determined. Part of the problem was the debris. I mean, it was just all so obliterated. How do you rebuild that stuff? It took them forever, and even then they couldn't really come up with a definitive answer. Could you imagine looking at an airplane crash site as, it's my job to piece this back together. Like a, Can you ugh. fucking imagine that? Like the worst puzzle ever. Uh, yeah, the humanity, just the humanity aside. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that would obviously be the worst part, but just like shrapnel, just things yep. everywhere. How the fuck? Now it's like we got to find the black box. That, right. That's, and I'm right. not sure if they had those in 1961. So I saw reference to a voice uh, recorder, but I didn't see any like... Because obviously that would have helped in, like, determining the cause, but I didn't see any information on that, so I'm not sure. 
Because to me, and I'm sure we'll get into it, my theory is obviously it had to have been some sort of mechanical failure. Had to have been. Like maybe the steering panel lost power? Well, so here we go. The authorities agreed that the most likely explanation was a mechanical failure. Most likely of either the wing spoilers or tail stabilizers. So we've we've got into tail stabilizers. We have before. we have the horizontal and mm-hmm. vertical. So the parts on on the tail, right, mm-hmm. that are responsible controls, for the <coughs> controls the pitch. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So either that or the wing spoilers, which are those little flaps that can go up on the wings. If mm-hmm. you've ever been, you know sat by the wing, um, which help control descent. So um, and help control your balance and yes. Air, your side so, to so side. basically, your it was roll. I believe it's called right. So basically, it was concluded that a mechanical failure of some sort led to a loss of control of the plane by the pilots, and that's what. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the it's just just like what was the mechanical failure? Now the description of that whole thing, the circling. Yeah, that's at some point all of those people. We're like literally laying on their backs, just like, what the fuck is going on? Then they leveled out, and you can imagine they're like, okay, thank God. Then Then they pitch and just drop and spiral. That is fucking horrifying. And I think... It's horrifying if if you're on a roller coaster. Yes. Yes, when it's supposed to be happening. that's, That's part of the point of it, is to make it terrifying. Right. If you're going through that on a plane, you're about to die. I mean, there's no... The only thing you can hope is that it'll be as fucking fast uh, yeah, as possible. that's it. Yeah, I hope it's quick. It's it's horrible. And that's, that's what... Because we've talked about this many times. Like, you just hope that the last minutes aren't terrifying. That they didn't suffer. They were terrifying But they were these people. fucking absolutely terrified. And, they had to have been. And, and I the mean, pilots, too. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, well, because they were just trying to gain yeah. some control. Probably till the last second they were working on it. They were just trying and trying and trying. Because they knew they had 70 people behind them mm-hmm. waiting for them to That's, get control. Oh Isn't this God. horrible? It's, and, and it's the, about the worst fucking possible thing that could possibly happen. And, uh, like, I literally couldn't find reference to who the other people on the plane were. But at the very least, like, 18 of these people were basically teenagers. Yeah, and I would like, imagine... just starting their career, just starting their lives. I would imagine there probably was some press on board, probably. There was most Possibly, likely... Possibly, yeah. It was most likely... Um, Although I would think they would mention that in the entourage, but I don't know. Because they did mention referees and judges. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, it was probably, like, families and business travelers yeah. and just all the usual people who Management. would be... Management. Yeah. Just, yeah, just, just, just uh, civilians on a plane, you know. It's horrible. So now, one of the interesting things about this whole thing is that one plane crash, one incident, one three-minute ordeal basically wiped out all of the best and brightest athletes in one sport in one country. Yeah. So essentially, U.S. figure skating had lost all of its best and brightest mm-hmm. in one one, one swoop, one shot. right? Um so the U.S. figure skating community not only had to deal with, like, the personal loss, because, like I said, they probably most likely knew everybody. Oh, they, everybody. And, yep. There was the families to deal with. There was the, the friendships to deal with. Everything. But then, like, on top of that, obviously less important, for sure. But still, like, the U.S. went from being, like, on top to now we don't, so have, we don't fucking have anybody, anybody to, to compete. compete. Yes, because our best people are gone. Um... So it, they were like, this is going to take us a few years to just rebuild this shit because our, our best people are gone now, all literally in one second. Um, so Barbara Rolls-Williams, who won the bronze in the 1960 Olympics, came out of retirement to compete in the 1962 U.S. Championships because she felt guilty about, like, shit, we lost all these people. Plus, she would have been competing that year. And would have most likely made it to the to the international championship as well, except she was pregnant. So she, that's why she retired. Uh, well, sure. And she had a kid like four months after this. So because she was pregnant, she kind of looked at it as like, my kid is well, what saved is, me from this. Yeah. 
Um, and because she was pregnant, she's like, well, my career doing this is done. Right. So You're she not, was like, I'm, is, I'm ready to retire. I'm is, moving uh, on. This is the early 1960s. Right. Amateur, when sports, the Olympics were still very much amateur. These right. people aren't making money. No, they're not they're making not, endorsements no. and all that, all that stuff. Uh-uh. Yeah. So I mean, they're, they're getting like travel and stuff paid for, I'm sure. But right. That's, that's it. Right. Pretty much. So they're, they're not they're not going to make a monetary career right out of being a figure skater in 1961 right so so she was like shit I have to I have to get back in so somebody has eight to. months after giving yeah. birth she went back to um, actually compete in a world event so that or sorry in a in a national event so um, she named her second child Dean in honor of Dean McMinn, the team manager, who mm. was aboard Flight 548, who she was very close with. So one of the other consequences of that is that so there was this void of 18 of the best skaters in the United States being gone. So younger skaters who were up and coming were pers- oh, pushed forward of they were. and progressed yeah. much faster than they would have otherwise. Yeah. For, and For better or for worse. Right, to higher levels of, of com- competition because they needed more skaters. So, in fact, the winner of the silver medal at the U.S. Championships in 1962 was 12 years old. <laughs> His bad. name was Scott Allen and he would go on to yeah, win yeah, Scotty Allen. Yeah, he would go on to win the bronze in the 64 Winter Olympics the same week he turned 15. No kidding. So he became one of the youngest um, Olympic medalists of all time. Not the youngest, in case you were wondering. The youngest was 10 years old in 1900 <laughs> and was Greek. Of course. So anyway. I was just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> and already had a beard. So it was born with a beard. <laughs> right. So within four years, which is what they said it was going to take two to four years to rebuild, by 1965, American skaters won medals in every event in the world championship and would be represented in every Olympics moving forward. Yeah. So... It did take time to recover, but they absolutely did, and um, and then we gave the world Tanya Harding. But you know, she was <laughs> she was good while she was good. I I will have to say, um, after watching I Tanya, I know it's a movie. No, it's a it, dramatized. It has movie. a it has a perspective. Yeah. You know, um, but the one thing I never really thought of, which is very much true, she was the. Um, she didn't belong in that sport. She's the underdog, yeah. Like, as far as Her, she didn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. she grew up poor, that kind of... It was of, a it class was, issue oh, at that point. Very, yeah. Well, it still would be today. Yeah. Um, winter sports are expensive. Yeah. Expensive as hell. Yeah. That's why you, you don't... You can't just run outside in most places and no. just play your sport. No. As, as opposed to soccer or basketball or something like that. Basketball, you can play... Literally anywhere. Pretty much. People have basketball hoops in their driveway. Mm-hmm. Um, soccer, find a field. Baseball, find Baseball, a field. Yep. Football, find yeah. a field. But you can't just find a mountain and go ski down it like and by you yourself. And you can't just find ice, depending <laughs> on where you live. Well, you can, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. God. So. The story, um, the story sucks. I know. That's why I said it, it's kind of reminiscent of the humble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so a memorial fund was established very soon after the plane crash by U.S. figure skating. It's still running today, and it has provided over $15 million in financial support for skating-related academic expenses, so like financial aid okay. for skating to athletes. Um, some of the young recipients um, of their funds included Peggy Fleming, oh, Christy yeah. Yamaguchi, and Scott Hamilton, who I constantly um, get mistaken with Mark Hamill. <laughs> but they are not the same person. They're not even close. <laughs> when I was a child, they were the same person in my you head. You and your name switch ups. I know. Hamill, Hamilton. I don't know. Uh, they kind of look a little. They're like no, little they guys. No. And they're cute. Scott Mark, Hamilton is a little guy. Mark Hamill's a little guy. I don't think he's so. He's not all that big. He's probably at least as tall as me. He's an actor. But I mean, he's not like a tall... Oh, oh, yes. A lot of actors are short. A lot of actresses are way taller than you think. A lot of actors are way shorter than you think. And they have to stand on boxes and shit. Well, I know Tom Cruise is only 5'1". No, he's not. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) uh, He was shorter than Nicole Kidman, I'll tell you that. Yeah. um, 
Scott Scott Hamilton, just the way I, I always remember him, he has a giant head. But that's not well, his, and he's that's not his fault. And that's, well, of course, it's nobody's fault what their proportions are. Yeah. We have short, tiny little legs. Yes, that's that's not our fault. But it, it just looks <laughs> weird to have like a small body and a giant Well, plus head. he's bald, so it, yeah. and he balded pretty early, as I recall, so probably makes his head look a little bigger. That is not a slight on bald people. You do you. That's fantastic. Hey, Have a big head. What does it matter? Some days I would prefer it. <laughs> some days I would prefer it because it takes you so no. fucking long to do your hair sometimes. I mean, who I'm me? kidding. You know. well, like, well, I'm I not gotta, really kidding. Get it, perfect. it takes you, know you longer to do your hair than it does me. Yeah, I have I'm, longer I'm, hair than you I do. Have better hair. Oh, well, you do. <laughs> okay. But I cut mine and got, saved the I money. Got, uh, I got best hair in high school. Did you really? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a, let me finish a, this. That was a bit from Arrested Development. Okay, let me finish this. Out. Okay, it's almost done. Um, so a five-foot monument in honor of all the crash victims was in, unveiled in 2001 near the site of the crash. So 40 years after. And the 1961 U.S. figure skating team was inducted into the U.S. Skating Hall of Fame in 2011 on the 50th anniversary yeah. of the crash. Immediately following the crash, U.S. figure skating made a new rule that is still in effect. No team traveling internationally sure. to yeah, a competition is allowed to fly together. Yeah. And that, my friends, was the story of Sabina Flight 548. Yeah, fuck that. Um, <laughs> well, the, something recently happened uh, five years ago? Five or six years ago... Um, there is the KHL, which is the Continental Hockey League, which is... Continental. Mm, with a K. Where? It is uh, mostly in Russia. Oh, okay. It's like their version of NHL, because there are a okay. lot of Czechs, Russians... Sure. ...that don't necessarily want to play in North America forever, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they have their own league. Um, but a team charter flight uh, really? crashed five years ago, I think. Five oh, or wow. Six. There, there was a former hurricane on the team. On that plane. The whole team was the on the plane? The whole team. I don't remember if if everybody perished. I don't think that was the case. Most okay. of them did. And a former Hurricane draft pick oh. who played for the did Hurricanes. He yeah, he did. Aww. But he played for the Hurricane. He was still playing for them when I first moved here. He played for them for Joseph Vosicek was his name. Okay. He played for them for like four or five seasons. Aw, sad. Yeah, I mean, lost that's whole, sad. The whole team, basically. Um, yeah, Moscow Dynamo or something like that. I think, yeah. So like that. this is what I wanted to talk to you about in front of our listeners. What's that? Um, so in doing this, between Humboldt, this story, another story that I really want to cover. Um, are our cats making trouble out there? Probably. I hear noise. Anyway, um, I I had an idea of a potential spinoff series, series for us. Because... I don't want to be constantly doing... I mean, these stories are fascinating because they're like... There's something about athletes and disasters that's really compelling. I don't know. Anyway, um, and like recently on My Favorite Murder, um, Karen covered... God, I forget his name. I think his name was Eddie something, but he was a surfer, and they did a 30 for 30 on him about... Oh, yeah, the Hawaiian guy. Yes, yes and he I've went missing yes. when he tried to, like... Tried to save people. Yes. Yeah. So, anyway... He's a legend. Exactly. Liter- the legend of Eddie, whatever yeah. his name was. But, anyway, um, what if we did a spinoff city... Uh, cities, cities? Cities. This is a 9.5%, <laughs> and I have done really well up to this point. I'm a... This is a 7%er, I believe. Yeah, but you have a higher tolerance than I do. I do. You grew up with this shit. I had I my did. first drink I, at 25. I, I grew up with alcohol in my system. 7.8. Okay. Mm. Anyway, what if we do a spinoff series? It's disasters in sports. But it could be a little looser. Sure. Where it's a more like, um, like if somebody... Uh, di- like Junior Seau. Mm-hmm. Or like it wouldn't necessarily have to just be... Disasters in our strict sense. I'm not going to say anything, but I something immediately popped into my head. That do, so, do you like cover. this idea? Sure. And maybe it could be a little more serious in tone, or we could just do it a different way, or I don't know. We'll see. Shout out at us because this is late in the episode, so clearly, if you've hung into this point, you're one of our loyal ones and not one of the assholes who leave us a one star <laughs> review who are total fuckwits, and I hate them. 
except not really, but I would still save them and jump in front of a bus for them, but they don't would deserve you, it. I, I like to think that I would. Even I wouldn't at that point. I would like I'm, to think that I would be somebody who would do something heroic to help somebody else, but I don't know, because it's never been put to the test, so I guess I wouldn't know. And we suddenly gotten very deep and some philosophical, but let us know what you think about that. Basically, Emily, Quincy... The few of you yeah, who are the, actually the, the hanging five, in till the, the five end. Of you that interact with us, let us know. Yeah. Yeah. It's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it if you want us to. <laughs> anyway, I was super excited about this episode, but not because it was happy, because obviously I just found it really, I did not know that the entire United States figure skating team literally died all at once in a horrific manner. I mean, Going to imagine, do something for the country. But imagine you know? uh, something like that happening today. Obviously, it wouldn't because now they fly separate. Right, as it's a rule. But, um, like, something like that wiping out an entire team. Like, the, the thing I, I mentioned with the Continental mm-hmm. Hockey, that, you know, that happened in another league, in another country. Well, and Plus, there were multiple teams in that league. They weren't yes. the only ones. No. This is the this only is team. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's just, I think the thing, like I said, and that's why I tried to give that disclaimer about, like, the, so they made up, what was it, 34 of the 72 people on board? So there were 38 other people on board, including 11 crew members, so flight attendants and the two pilots and everything else. Yeah, you don't want to make Everyone was important on board. Everyone, including all those other 38 people. Incredibly important. Just as important as the team. But there's a a story element to that, you know? And that especially they were all, like, young and at the beginning of their careers. Like, uh, Lori Owen was on the front of fucking Sports Illustrated the week before. Mm -hmm. And... And then just like that, nobody's fault. And not even something that they could definitively say what caused it. Just like that, just life can turn on a fucking dime, man. And it's terrifying sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's just, yeah, like, no wonder anxiety and depression (laughs) are a thing. Cheers! Let's drink to that. Cheers to anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm done. No more ranting. I'm done. Okay. Well, this has been another episode of All Bad Things. My name is David. I'm Rachel. (laughs) And we'll see you next week. And know your exits.